0: A road trip across the USA can be a great way to access American history up close. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. In the hour ahead, we'll get tips for getting in touch with
1: 19th-century America from Illinois to Washington along the Lincoln Trail. I think people who don't think of themselves as kind of real history buffs will have a much stronger reaction to being at Gettysburg than they might realize. In the mid-20th century,
0: many African-American travelers used a special guidebook to find a welcome place to
2: stay when segregation meant a road trip might come with trouble along the way. These were just regular houses, and there was no phone numbers. You would just drive up, knock on the door, and say, "I see that you're listed in the Green Book." A lot of times, the uh, people wouldn't even charge. And for
0: 21st Century Fun, TV travel host Samantha Brown shares tips on being a happy frequent flyer.
3: I love airports. I love being there, um, and I know that makes me different than every single person in
0: this world. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. We often take the comforts of modern travel for granted. Not so many years ago, travel wasn't so easy, and for some, it was strewn with hidden obstacles and dangers. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll meet Calvin Alexander Ramsey, who tells us how a special guidebook helped African-American businessmen and families find welcome accommodations on the road during the days of segregation and Jim Crow laws. And later... We'll hear how TV host Samantha Brown has fun with her heavy travel schedule. Watching Daniel Day-Lewis in the movie Lincoln recently got me thinking about what a great road trip theme it would be to take in sites associated with the Civil War and the 16th president, especially this year. You've got the land of Lincoln in Illinois, his boyhood home in Kentucky, and interesting sites all the way to Washington, D.C., Joining us right now to help us follow the Lincoln Trail is Lonely Planet's U.S. travel editor, Robert Reed. Robert, thanks for being with us.
1: Great to be here, Rick.
0: So 2013 is kind of exciting. They got the anniversary of the Gettysburg Address and the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, abolishing slavery in the United States. How can travelers celebrate?
1: Well, it's a huge year, isn't it? I mean, I think that there's a lot of different places if you're interested in history and interested in Lincoln to go to. The top place for the anniversaries would be, you know, probably first of all, Gettysburg, you know, the Gettysburg Address. He uh, read that several months after the battle, but there's all kinds of events in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania this year. I've been to the reenactments before. I've been to just visit the National Park, and I've actually gone on November 19th when they have a reenactor portray Lincoln and read the address Mm. at the same place that he did. And they're all really powerful experiences. I, I think people who don't think of themselves as kind of real history buffs will have a a much stronger reaction to being at Gettysburg than they might realize. And so this is a big year for Gettysburg. Robert, physically what is there at Gettysburg? Gettysburg is in kind of southern central Pennsylvania. It's a mountainous area. The town itself is is not big by any means, and the battlefield kind of sprawls all the way around it as it did in 1863. So that's a national park site. People are going to the, you know, revisiting like where Pickett's Charge was, where it was a famed and failed Confederate charge Mm -hmm. on the last day of Gettysburg. In the town itself, there's all kinds of places to stay, historic buildings that Lincoln stayed at. And that's been turned into essentially a Gettysburg Address Museum. So it's a lot of history there.
0: And it's quite well preserved. They make a point to help you feel what it was like 150 years ago.
1: Yeah. You'll see a lot of people dressed up in Civil War attire. Uh, The last time I was there, um, I got adopted by some Ohio reenactors. And so I was in a parade uh, wearing blue. You you do run
0: into these reenactors along the way. Uh, What are they like? Are they just regular run of the day people that like to dress up on the weekends in uh, (laughs) Lincoln era clothing or or what's your take on them?
1: They're really interesting. I've always thought that like Will Ferrell should do kind of a reenactor spoof movie, you know, or something (laughs) like that. And I still think he probably should. But they're really accessible. They're really passionate. And they they get along with each other, the Confederates and the Union reenactors. And they're really there to honor history itself. And they feel like living it. Would most of them be celebrating Lincoln or would there be some detractors of Lincoln? Well, I you know, that's the thing. You know, the movie You're talking about is filmed in in Richmond and Richmond, a lot of people don't realize is a big Lincoln site itself. Like a week before he died, he went there with his son, Tad, a day after it was liberated. Can you imagine the president walking around, you know, a city that had been, you know, the capital of the the opposing forces the day before? Um, So there's sites there, but it was controversial when they created a statue a number of years ago with Tad. So there are places that like Lincoln less.
0: Now, talking about Richmond, Lincoln actually went there, like you said, just after it was taken by Union troops, right? He went into the Confederate White House and sat in Jefferson Davis's seat. Is there a museum now in Richmond, or is the White House still there? What do we physically see in Richmond from the Civil War days?
1: Well, you can visit the Confederate White House, you know, where that chair was, and he sat there planning everything that happened. There's a couple Mm. museums. One is the Museum of the Confederacy. There's another one that's a little bit more broad in scope. It's the American Civil War Center that does look at the war from the southern, northern, and from the slave experience. Mm. And then, you know, you could essentially do a walking tour of downtown Richmond, as he did with his son there in 1865, shortly before he died. Wow. So they've really, Richmond's really taken on this mm. as something to attract visitors to come and retrace those steps. And you're right. People don't think of Richmond when it comes to the Lincoln Trail. Something we think mm-hmm. of for sure
0: is Springfield, Illinois. This would be like the ground zero for Lincoln fans. What's preserved
1: there? Uh, what would be on our checklist of, of experiences and sites? There's a relatively new Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum. It's an excellent museum right there near mm. uh, the courthouse where he uh, once worked. You can walk to where his home is, which you can visit. That's a national park site. That's free. His grave is there, isn't it? Yes, it is. His tomb is just a couple miles north of the center. It's a huge 120-foot monument in the Oak Ridge Cemetery where He and three of his sons, uh, Robert, uh, his oldest son's actually in Arlington Cemetery, and his wife, Mary, they're all buried there. You go in and you walk through and uh, essentially like a mausoleum and you see uh, where they rest now. Well, I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves.
0: I'm speaking with Robert Reed, and Robert Reed works for Lonely Planet, and uh, he's the editor for their USA edition. Uh, He writes articles about topics like this at lonelyplanet.com. And Robert also has a blog at his own site, which is readontravel.com, R-E-I-D, on travel. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Tom is calling in from Oxnard, California. Tom, thanks for your call.
4: Well, thank you, uh, Rick. President Lincoln was always uh, someone I admired and... And through your travels, uh, being a Navy officer myself, I always uh, always see him a lot with uh, his military officers and during the Civil War, his his generals, not too many much with his admirals. Mm -hmm. Uh, Have you witnessed or have you been to any of the places where uh, the President Lincoln could have seen his Navy?
1: I I haven't been, but near Richmond is the place where he went to visit uh, General Grant and eventually go to Richmond that we were just talking about. He went by boat a couple times down there. That would be the place. City Point is called near Richmond, and I think that might be the place uh, that you could find that.
0: Now, Tom, Lincoln really relied on the Navy in the Civil War, didn't he? He must have been a proponent of the Navy, and there must have been some advancements made during that period uh, to make our Navy stronger.
4: Yes, sir. First off, he he, uh, used and implemented the blockade around uh, the southern ports. Uh, Mm -hmm also championed a lot of innovation that we see today in the modern Navy as we got away from sail into steam under Lincoln's watch. USS Monitor, which was a revolution in naval warfare, was built under his watch. And in fact, he would spend a lot of time at the Washington Navy Yard, which was close to the Capitol building. And in fact, uh, if my memory serves me right from uh, my experiences there being stationed at the Washington Navy Yard, I think he actually was there on his last day before he he was killed. He went down and visited a ship, I believe it was the USS Montauk, President Lincoln did certainly uh, you know, enjoy his Navy, like his Navy. And, uh, wow. uh,
0: if you were a fan of Navy history and you wanted to chart a graph of how the Navy has evolved and advanced, there must have been quite a spike during the 1860s when Lincoln was president and desperately trying to find a way to, to keep the nation together with uh, innovative and uh, cutting-edge Navy. Thanks, Tom. Thank you, sir. Yeah. Craig's on the line in Chicago. Craig, thanks for your call. Hello. Hey there.
5: Yeah, I was in Gettysburg um, just two months ago. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Can't recommend it enough. And there's something happening this year. This is the 150th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg, and they're going to have commemorations all year long.
0: Craig, why did you enjoy it? Because it's it's just a big battlefield, isn't it? What was there about it?
5: Um, You can almost feel the ghosts from 150 years ago the actual battlefield is maintained in the same state that it was 150 years ago. Plus, you can hire a guide who can take you on a very detailed tour, which I did when I was there two months ago. Hmm. It's only $60, and if you you know if you go with a friend, that's $30 each. Mm-hmm. And the detail that they provide is, is excellent. Um, they take you along where the Union lines were where the Confederate lines were. And my guide pointed out, you know, specific areas. This is where, say, the Virginia troops were, the Minnesota troops were. And they recreate what happened that day and point out stories that happened that were quite fascinating.
0: Wow. Craig, did you go to the Lincoln home or the library or the museum in uh, Springfield?
5: Yeah, I live in Illinois, and there's several great sites there. About five years ago, the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum opened. What I found out that was quite interesting was that there was a presidential library and museum for Jefferson Davis that was built years ago, but not one for Abraham Lincoln. There's finally one for Abraham Lincoln.
0: Wow, that's about time, yeah. yeah. Tell, tell us about Lincoln's home in Springfield. What, what do you actually see there?
5: Quite a bit. Um, it's maintained in the same state on the day that Abraham Lincoln left when I toured it most recently the guide pointed out a desk and I said, Could that have been the desk on which the House Divided speech was written? He says it possibly was. He doesn't know that for sure, but right. it dates to the time when Lincoln lived there. Yes. The beautiful old home. It's also near the old Illinois State Capitol where the House Divided speech was delivered. You could be in the actual see the actual room mm-hmm. where the speech was given.
0: Wow, it just sounds so inspirational. Thanks, Craig, for your uh, your insight into that.
5: Okay, cheers.
0: I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Robert Reed. He's the Lonely Planet travel editor for the Lonely Planet USA guide, and uh, his writing can be enjoyed at lonelyplanet.com. Robert, I was reading your article about Lincoln, and and, uh, we'll finish off just by talking about the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. And I was just there a few months ago, and I'll tell you, one of the most moving monuments. And after reading your article, I didn't put it together, but it's right there on the banks of the Potomac, the former border between the north and the south. And it's got those 36 Doric columns symbolizing the 36 states that were unified under Lincoln's watch. And then when you look at Lincoln, he's got one fist closed, sort of symbolizing determination and strength. And the other one's open with that very important... uh, sort of attitude of, of malice towards none. Uh, it's particularly a sacred feeling after dark. What's your take on the Lincoln Memorial?
1: It's just absolutely stunning. You, you've seen it so many times but when you go there and you realize that. You look at his hands. I walked all the way around the back, so you can yeah. see all of the states that are written. Those 36 states are written around the top of it that I didn't even know that you could go around the back and just see that. You see the words of the Gettysburg Dress on the wall yeah. in part of his second inauguration. It's, it is symbolic that it's there. You know, like you yeah. said, it's right there on the border. And just the fact, malice towards none. I mean, he really didn't want, he wanted a very peaceful resolution once the war was over. And maybe history would have played differently if he had survived. Robert Reed, thanks so much. And best wishes with your uh, writing at Lonely Planet. Thank you, Rick. It was great.
2: Words of old Abe Lincoln, of Jefferson and Payne, of Washington and Jackson, and the tasks that still remain are Gettysburg and Midway and the story of the time.
0: Samantha Brown joins us for frequent flyer tips in just a bit. Up next, Calvin Alexander Ramsey explains how African American travelers had to rely on a special guidebook when taking road trips not so many years ago. We'll learn about the Green Book next on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. Tips about traveling in Europe and information about the EU are available at euintheus.org. Before the Civil Rights Act passed in 1964, and for some years after, the discrimination most African-American travelers faced meant a long road trip required making special provisions to avoid possible trouble on the road. One of those provisions was the Green Book. Calvin Alexander Ramsey's a playwright and an artist, and he's looked into this special travel directory that began circulating around African-American communities back in the 1930s. The Green Book listed gas stations, stores, restaurants, beauty parlors, hotels, and guest houses where their business was welcome. He's written a children's book called Ruth and the Green Book, which has received a number of prestigious awards. It depicts a family road trip to visit out-of-town relatives from the perspective of a black schoolgirl named Ruth. Calvin joins us right now on Travel with Rick Steves from the studios of Georgia Public Broadcasting in Atlanta. Uh, Calvin, thanks for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Tell us about this era of uh, Jim Crow as it applies to black Americans who wanted to get out on the road and take their families on a vacation, or if somebody who was uh, uh, working and had to to make a a road trip, what sort of um, challenges they would encounter up until the
2: 1960s? Well, it was very difficult. Up until World War II, African Americans weren't really migrating uh, a whole lot, but after World War II, they really got on the open road, and they started buying automobiles. And that's when it really presented a a, a problem on the open road because there were so many places where they could not get service or have accommodations on the open road. So traveling by car was really a serious problem for African-Americans during this great migration period when as many as 6 to 8 million African-Americans migrated from the South to the North and also to the West.
0: What is the name The Green Book? Where does that come
2: from? Well, the name comes from this African-American mailman in Harlem named Victor Hugo Green. Uh, He was a uh, postal worker, and he would take his wife and family down to Richmond, Virginia every summer. And every summer he would have problems, uh, places to stay, using the restroom, overnight lodging. And so he went back to New York. Instead of getting angry, he decided to do something Hmm. about it. And he belonged to a uh, a union within the federal government called the National Association of Postal and Federal Employees. And through that uh, organization, he was able to reach out to other mailmen throughout the country, African-American mailmen, because during that period, African-American mailmen could only deliver mail in black neighborhoods. Hmm. And so they were able to ask people on their routes would they like to be in this uh, travel guide, and, and it grew from there. And this is up until relatively recent times, until until the
0: 1960s. Now, it was first published in 1936. It was called The Negro Motorist Green Book, an international travel guide, and then just uh, its nickname was The Green Book. Apparently, it, it sold quite a lot. I know you're making a film, and in the research for your film, have you run into a lot of people who've used it? What are some of the anecdotes of, of black Americans who traveled and, and how this book helped them out?
2: Well, I uh, interviewed a couple out of New Orleans who used the Green Book on their honeymoon. They vacationed down in Pensacola, Florida. I uh, introduced another gentleman who uh, used the book to drive his father down from uh, lower Louisiana down to uh, Miami, Florida, and, and a lot of folks that were traveling were not always entertainers or ballplayers. They were just average people. I interviewed a uh, gentleman that worked for Esso, which is now ExxonMobil, and he's one of the first blacks that was hired in corporate America. And these guys would travel to conventions and uh, to association meetings, and they had expense accounts but nowhere to spend the money. Yeah. Uh, so they were really in a, a sort of a tough spot. And they relied on the Green Book more than anyone else because the white-collar African-American during this period was on the road more than anyone else. Right. We're learning about
0: travel with the Green Book circa 1952 right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Calvin Alexander Ramsey's written Ruth and the Green Book to illustrate what a family road trip would have been like for African-Americans driving from Chicago to visit relatives in Alabama in that era. That's when Jim Crow laws made it difficult for black motorists to find accommodations on the road without the special directory that Victor H. Green published with a state-by-state list of welcoming businesses. There's more about the story online at ruthandthegreenbook.com. We've also got a link to a PDF of an actual Green Book from 1949. Notice that the cover has my favorite Mark Twain quote on it. Travel is fatal to prejudice. You'll find that link in this week's radio program details at ricksteves.com. There's an anecdote in your in this beautiful children's book, Ruth and the Green Book, and you talk about the little girl whose mom would pack a big lunch, and the kids were didn't quite get it, but the big lunch was necessary because they may not even be able to find a place where they
2: could stop to get a lunch. Yeah, and in the children's book, Ruth didn't know why her mother was cooking so much that week uh, as they were traveling from... Chicago to Selma, Alabama, and, and in the children's book, the uh, year is 1952. And back then and up to the 64, when women would make these meals, and most of the time it was women cooking, sometime men, they would cook things that wouldn't perish. So they would make pound cake, boiled eggs, uh, raspberry tea, fried chicken. Uh, you could make anything that had you know mayonnaise in it or something that would become rancid on the open road because a lot of these cars back then, really did not have suitable air conditioning. Calvin, when you when I think about
0: this, I think about parallels with the Underground Railroad 100 years ago, and uh, that, of course, gets a lot of uh, attention in schools. But the modern-day story of African Americans not being able to be out on the road is kind of um, unnoticed. And do you have a, a sense that part of your work is shining a light on this?
2: Exactly. And there's a parallel with the Underground Railroad. In the book, uh, you see that Esso Oil sold the Green Book at a lot of their stations, and that's what at the time was owned by Standard Oil, which was owned by John D. Rockefeller Sr. And John D. Rockefeller Sr. got involved with this uh, project, uh, having the Green Book sold at his stations throughout the country, mainly because of his wife. His wife's name was Laura Spellman. Uh, her family was out of Ohio, and they were abolitionists. And their home was part of the Underground Railroad. Her father was a minister, a Congregationalist minister. And he was what you call a conductor on the Underground Railroad, which means that, you know, he was one of the people that would allow his home to be used uh, for enslaved people who were leaving the South, making their way to Canada. So uh, Laura grew up in this environment. And Laura's last name is Spellman. There's a college in Atlanta, Georgia, called Spellman College, which is an African-American college for women. And Rockefeller was one of the big supporters of the school from day one. The school's original name was the Women's Seminary College. Hmm. And uh, he got involved in it, and he said, if you would change the name of this school to honor my wife and her family, I would make sure proceeds from my foundation would come to this school every year. And the name of the school was changed. And if you went on campus today, you would see a portrait of uh, a Minister Spellman in administration hall and his wife. And the church on campus is called Sister Chapel, and it's named after Laura and Lucy, the uh, minister's two daughters. So that's very
0: interesting that Rockefeller recognized the, the injustice here, and he happened to have a built-in distribution network with all the Esso gas stations for road trippers. So mm-hmm. was that probably the primary way? I understand that you know when the Green Book was at its height, they were printing 150,000 copies every year. Was the Esso gas station where most people bought it?
2: They could get it there, but also they could get it from Pullman Porters, NWCP, church organizations, mailmen would sell it, uh, civic organizations. And once you got a copy, you kept it forever. Man, uh, I would love no... to get a copy of that. Is it, is it like a collector's item now? <laughs> exactly. You know, the book, when it first started out, sold for 25 cents. There was a library who just purchased one. They had to pay $5,000 for it. <laughs> Is that right? Oh, my goodness. It's a, a red book. It's six by nine. It will fit into the glove compartment of the car. And once you got a copy, you kept it forever. You can go online and actually read
0: every page. I browsed through it, and it's quite interesting. If people just Google uh, the Green Book, they can find that.
2: Yeah, and, and it wasn't just in the southern states. You know, the Jim Crow laws were pretty much all over. So if you was traveling to Northern California, you would still be limited where you could stay. That's right. Uh, New England, the same the same would hold true. Now, you did have tourist
0: homes that are listed in the books. These are like bed and breakfasts, right?
2: Well, actually, they were just regular houses. They just called them tourists homes, just wow. regular homes, you know, and there was no phone numbers. You would just drive up, knock on the door and say, I see that you're listed in the green book. <laughs> and and so it wasn't no advanced planning or calling in ahead and saying we're on our way. Uh, you would just show up. Uh, a lot of times the uh, people wouldn't even charge. They just had an empathy for the, the plight of African Americans on the road and, and opened up their homes. And it was the African Americans themselves, and they knew that they could be in the same situation, so they were kind of giving back mm-hmm. and hoping that they would, could receive the same kind of uh, right. service if they were on the road. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Calvin Alexander
0: Ramsey, and Calvin has written a children's book. It's called Ruth and the Green Book. Calvin, tell us about the Sunset Laws. These are, are something that... Uh, a lot of
2: Americans don't even recall.
0: And this would have been a a devastating thing for African American travelers in the
2: old days. Yes, exactly. If you're going through certain counties, there were signs posted saying you should not be caught there after sunset. And these towns and counties were throughout the United States. And if you got caught there overnight, you could really be in trouble not only with the law, but maybe with the local citizens as well. That was something that people in cars were very conscious of, which is why a lot of Ameri- African Americans, even with cars, chose to travel by bus and train. You could accidentally be out all of a sudden at sunset and you could be in physical trouble. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and also with the authorities, you could get arrested or, mm-hmm. or have physical harm done to you and your family. And so if you were traveling with your family, you was always putting your family first. Right. And and those things were foremost in the minds of the uh, family that were traveling. Kelvin, are there any
0: physical memorials or plaques or anything to acknowledge this sort of modern-day Underground Railroad, you know, uh, as you travel around today. Is is there any recognition of these tourist homes and and these organizations that opened uh, up for black American travelers?
2: Not really. Uh, There are some establishments that are still standing. I think in Atlanta, Georgia, the Butler Street YMCA is still in operation. It's not as popular as it was in the earlier days, but it's still operating as a place where men who are traveling, businessmen, could stay overnight or people Mm. working in a town could get extended stay as well. But uh, a lot of these buildings have been converted to apartments or stores or, or torn down. But people who are a certain age have memories of the Green Book and how it all started and how it was so helpful to them on the open road.
0: Now, of course, we've come a long way, but uh, I would imagine there still are some challenges for African-American travelers. When you're out and about and when other African-Americans are traveling around our country, are there regions where they still face problems? And, and how has the legacy of this Jim Crow era survived when it comes to the Great American Road Trip?
2: Well, you know, when I'm traveling, I'm 62, and if I'm driving and I see an exit, you know, and if it's not a, a national chain, I'm still reluctant to pull off if it's late at night or early in the morning mm-hmm. uh so those things are still with you mm-hmm. it's almost like when you're working out you have a, a muscle memory <laughs> uh you have a memory on this as well even though i was young when uh the civil rights bill was passed i was a early a young teenager uh but the stories you hear and things you experience as a young person they never don't really ever all the way mm-hmm. go away so so i'm very conscious of uh, that when i'm traveling and i think a lot of other people are as well Calvin, when did the Green Book actually go out of print? 64, 1964. Mr. Green's dream was to go out of business. He did not want to print the book forever. He mm-hmm. was looking for the day when the civil bill would pass so that the uh, African Americans would be treated like other Americans uh, in wow. this society. So he was looking forward to going out of business. And I think he was very happy when that day came. And, and uh, a lot of folks asked, what did he do after that? I said, well, he's, remember, he was a full-time mailman. He had a, he had a day job. Uh, So, but he really wanted to, uh, you know, stop publishing this publication because it was, uh, in a way, a very good thing. But also, it was helpful, but also it was uh, a little shameful, too, to have to have a separate guide Mm -hmm. for uh, citizens in in this great country.
0: Well, that was just one of of many reasons to celebrate. In 1964, Mm. when the Civil Rights Act passed and Victor H. Green no longer had to publish the Negro Motorist Green Book, an international travel guide. Uh, Calvin, I've, I've got the, the children's book in my hand here, and I understand you've mm-hmm. also working on a play and a movie. Tell us uh, what else you're doing with this
2: green book. I had a play. Uh, the play had a reading in Washington, D.C. at the uh, historic Lincoln Theater uh, on U Street. In the play, Julian Bond, the civil rights leader from uh, the 60s, played the role of Mr. Green. And since then, we had a world premiere of the play, in Atlanta, Georgia at Theatrical Outfit, and the play was extended for two extra weeks. And now I'm working to take the play to New York City to uh, Lincoln Center. And the movie? Well, the movie is a documentary where I'm actually interviewing actual people that use the Green Book and have stories about the Green Book and how the Green Book was a major asset to them and their family traveling. That'll be a
0: little bit of living history then. That'll be good to collect that and save it. Exactly. Why did you write the children's book and what do you hope children will take away from this?
2: Well, you know, uh, I'm old enough where my family could have used the Green Book. Uh, I was born in Baltimore, but I grew up in North Carolina, and we used to make those trips back and forth. And it wasn't long trips, but they were trips that would uh, take a little time. And I remember my mother's cooking and, and they're packing stuff. And sometimes uh, we even uh, travel with gasoline in the trunk of the car in big metal containers because, you know, the parents really didn't want to have any interaction that might, you know, spill over into an incident. Mm -hmm. I had never heard of the Green Book up until 11 years ago. I was at a school one day, and I was talking about the Green Book, and I told a young lady that I told the classroom with people that I'm old enough to remember my family could have used the Green Book. Mm -hmm. And she asked me had I ever seen a dinosaur. (laughs) Uh, And I said, well, it wasn't quite that long ago. But I was at a funeral about 11 years ago, and a friend of mine, a son was killed in a car accident, and I went to the funeral, and a grandfather came down from New York City. He was a retired mailman, and after the service, uh, we were all in the backyard talking about different things, and he looked right at me, and he said, I was looking for a green book. It was his first time in the Deep South, and he thought he still needed one. And I said, what's the green book? And he started explaining it to me at the time. And uh, I had never heard of it. And I was uh, on the advisory board of Emory University at the time, special collections, manuscripts, and read books. And I went over there, and they did not have a copy. So I went to Atlanta University, and they had two copies of the green book. And they made me copies of copies. And from there, I started researching, and I wrote a play about the green book, called the green book. Then I wrote a children's book. And in the children's book, on the dedication page, I dedicated the book to uh, the young man who was killed in a car accident, uh, Little Tony, because I, I probably would have heard of the Green Book eventually, but not in such a dramatic manner. Calvin Alexander
0: Ramsey, best wishes, and uh, let's be thankful we don't need a Green Book today. Exactly.
2: Thank you.
1: You're going to rise, you're going to rise up singing. Spread your little wings, your little wings, and take to
5: the sky.
0: There's a lot to explore around the USA, and some of our listeners have sent us a haiku poem they've written about their travels, whether close to home, around the country, or around the world. Share your travel haiku with us in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Here are some examples we thought you'd enjoy.
6: Phyllis Baker from Seattle describes what she saw on a road trip through the mountains of Oregon. Graffiti on freights, high up in the Siskiyous, traveling art show. Jeff Sibley from Central City, Louisiana, stretches the haiku form a bit to tell us about a bike trip he made across the state, along its original state highway, LA-1. Louisiana's longest street, great people along the way to meet, 500 miles pedaled to complete. Gail Weinstein writes us from Port Orange, Florida, to tell us about a famous nearby beach town. Choose sand or asphalt, Cars along shore or racetrack? Daytona Beach? Wow. And Karen Albright of Fort Wayne, Indiana, describes the scene in the car on a family road trip up north. Up to Michigan. Ah, sullen teenage daughter. Karma strikes again.
0: Frequent Flyer and TV host Samantha Brown joins us next as we compare notes on making yourself at home on the road. It's travel with Rick Steves. For more than 10 years, Samantha Brown has hosted a delightful collection of TV shows on the Travel Channel before taking time off this past January to give birth to twins. But she promises to be back on the road soon, filming more adventures all around the world with twins in tow. Sam qualifies as a frequent, frequent traveler. She's on the road for at least 200 days most years, and I figure I've spent about a third of my life on the road. Samantha joins us right now on Travel with Rick Steves to compare notes on how we make ourselves at home on the road, wherever we're stashing our suitcases. Samantha Brown, thanks for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me, Rick.
0: So you've traveled more than half the year on occasion. How do you approach the airports? A lot of people just love to complain about airports. How do you manage them?
3: Yeah, here's the thing. I People don't know about me. I love airports. I love being there. Um, And I know that makes me different than every single person in this world, Um, but I love them, and I think a lot of the stress that people feel is because they haven't simply allowed enough time to get to the airport, to get to the lines, to get through the security lines, and that builds up stress, and you worry about missing a flight, and that is so easily erased by just getting there in plenty of time. And by plenty of time, I mean... Um, An hour and a half before your flight leaves, or even if you look at your ticket, the boarding ticket usually says the boarding time, and that's Mm -hmm. typically a half hour before the flight's going to leave. So use that as your marker, and then you've built in, you've even padded more time. With smartphones and everything that's happening, you can do work while you're at the airport. Uh, Airports are becoming vastly more interesting places to, you know, get your nails done. You can get a manicure. You can have a great meal. Um, People watching is great. You know, of course, once you get through security, it it can become a, a really you know nice place to be. So get there on
0: time. Do you have an app that lets you know how your flight's doing and so on?
3: Oh, I've got all those apps. What, <laughs> what app do you
0: use for your uh, to to track your flight?
3: I actually just I have Flight Tracker is yeah. is a great app, Flight Tracker Pro, uh, which you can pay for, and then the one the first one is free. But also, I find and I've certainly tested this: just when you sign up for the actual airline that you're on, they yeah. send you an alert. And it's usually the exact same time, the exact same, um, you know, so.
0: I got the free flight track. It works great for me. And I remember in the old days, I was always stressed out about what terminal I'm going to, Um, especially in in a foreign country. You know, you're going out to Heathrow and there's five different terminals and the taxi driver doesn't really know where your airline is. And that can be kind of stressful.
3: That's true.
0: You know, when you're uh, packing, I, I find if you pack light, you're more mobile. And especially you can handle the airport a little easier. What are your tips for packing?
3: I pack, I always say, um, if you, for ladies, it's especially difficult. Like my mom is of the generation of if you're traveling for, you know, seven days, you pack for 14. Yeah, right. (laughs) Like mom, my simple equation is bring, you know, four pairs of pants and four tops and they all match. You have got 16 outfits and you change that outfit by either wearing a scarf to make it a little more upscale or earrings and big jewelry to make it a little fancy. You put on flats or you put on heels And that's it. But um, I think it's relatively easy to pack a carry-on.
0: In other words, you just travel with a carry-on?
3: I do, but here's the thing. I'll have a carry-on because I I can't stand the weight of anything bigger. Mm. For my larger trips where I was gone for a month, yes, I would pack like a 26-inch bag. But I still like to check. I'm I'm a checker, Rick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I know that makes me very different from a lot of travelers. But, um, well, I think
0: the, the reason to pack light is more than just whether you check or not. You're more mobile once you get to Europe. So I, I think you can make a very good case for checking your bag if you don't have a tight connection, just because you right. won't be all sweaty when you finally get to your uh, wherever you're ultimately going.
3: And that's a very good point. Usually if I'm connecting then I will absolutely carry on. If I have a direct, which I usually do because I'm based in New York City and everything can be direct, which is wonderful, yeah. <laughs> um, I don't have that worry. Um, I don't, you know, the, my bag's going to be there.
0: For me, I love going direct whenever possible.
3: Oh, yes. It changes everything. <laughs> it really does.
0: Now, you've got some sort of philosophy, I know, about spinning or something like that for packing, rolling up stuff? or
3: Oh, I see. Uh, you know, I used to be a roller. Um, now I love the compression cubes, which I think are brilliant,
0: now, these are the ones where you have a, actually create a suction, or, or is it uh, just a, a cube? You
3: know, it's a cube, and some actually have sort of vents on the side where, you know, once you zipper it up, that you can press the air out. They're yeah. just a simple material. It's not like that plastic thing that you
0: Yeah, I tried that plastic your... thing, and it seemed clever, but I, it just didn't work well for me.
3: I've never tried that. It just no. it made look everything look like freeze-dried meat. <laughs>
0: yeah, right. It does look like <laughs> dried meat, doesn't it? So you use packing cubes.
3: I like cubes a lot.
0: Yeah. yeah. Those are very popular. Yeah, they're great. They work well. A fundamental thing is just to realize, hey, if you need something, you can buy it over there.
3: Yeah. I mean, you know, when I found that that actually changed when you're in Asia because I'm bigger than most of the people there. So I didn't pack. I actually don't pack enough a lot of times. Uh And when I went out to buy jeans or anything, oh, my gosh, nothing would fit. And I had one attendant who just kind of looked at me. Pityingly, because <laughs> I was too big for even the biggest jeans they had. Really? Wow. So, yes. So, you're you're uh, petite. In,
0: you were too big. In
3: some, yeah, in some countries. In some countries. Yes, you but, better uh, bring it from home. Yes, yes. But, of course, in Europe, you can find anything. Yeah. Anything.
0: By the way, I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're comparing notes with Samantha Brown. And uh, Samantha's been bringing us beautiful travel shows on the Travel Channel for the last 10 or 12 years. And Samantha's sharing her tips Samantha, you're on a lot of long flights. What's your mm-hmm. trick for passing a long flight and getting through it, uh, you know, without going crazy?
3: I love long flights. Again, I'm, I'm a little strange when it comes to travel. Um, just found out that Singapore Airlines is canceling the longest flight now. There's no more LAX to Singapore and EWR to Singapore. The 18-hour ah, flight.
0: 18 hours.
3: The 18-hour flight, I was on it three times, and it was bliss. Uh, no one can get in touch with you. You can read. You can download movies. I sleep like a baby on a plane ten hours, and then you wake up, you eat. <laughs> it's it's a spa treatment.
0: you sleep on the plane. do you do you take some chemical help or do you just sleep?
3: Um, I'll take melatonin
0: ah melatonin, which is just yeah. your,
3: the the natural, you know, yeah. the natural. And maybe a glass of wine or two. <laughs> well, that'll help, yeah. <laughs> that'll definitely help.
0: I think about the only pharmaceutical I'd take is Ambien. That works for me on a wow. sleep on the floor. Wow.
3: See, that knocks you out, it, though.
0: Well, i just take a quarter tablet. It really does knock you out. Oh, I, 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 <laughs>
3: you break that little tablet into I take,
0: quarters. I, I, I actually do. Oh I look like a little pill junkie because I got my little <laughs> slicer <bet>. here. <laughs> but <just> the first <laughs> time I ever took, I talked to some business traveler and says, you got to try this Ambien. So I, was in, I got a prescription for Ambien. I went to Vienna. And I just wanted to get a good night's sleep, so I took a mm-hmm. whole Ambien, and oh. I went to sleep so fast that in the morning I felt like a detective coming into a scene of something because I left everything <laughs> open and running and, and everything, so and I just it hit me so solid. <laughs> so ever since then, I haven't ventured beyond a quarter of a tablet, but... But that's and, a, and, the,
3: and the real tip with the Ambien is never take that Ambien until that plane is at the cruising altitude. You're, you're you know, right. Because <laughs> if that plane has to turn around for any reason, or you know, even if you're taxiing out to the jetway, yeah. it could come back and you are in trouble. You are in trouble. <laughs> because you are in trouble <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're, No one's going to get you. They're going to be like, and you'll, yeah. they'll kick you off the flight because they'll think you're drunk or right. something.
0: Well, yeah. And, so, you know, your positive attitude is so important for airports and flights. People come up with the pettiest reasons to complain on a flight, oh, you know? Yeah, and I say, yeah. look out the window and imagine going wherever you're going on a bus, you know, and don't complain yeah. about the food now and, and uh, you know, don't worry about how much legroom you got. You're going at uh, 600 miles an hour and as far as I'm concerned, if you land safely on the day you hope to, it's been a, a beautiful thing and you should send a postcard of thanks to the airline.
3: Absolutely. And the flight attendants, man, do they work hard. And there are a lot of flights where, you know, most people are really good people, but you get one or two that are just miserable, and they really can treat the flight attendants terribly. And I just think, what what do you stand to win by having that type of attitude? If you're mad at the airline, talk to the president, not the person who's on the front lines, who is just getting you their drink. And so I, I find that people can behave a little better.
0: Yeah, there's a school of people that think if you just are really annoying and aggressive, you're going to get more than everybody else. But if everybody acted that way, we wouldn't get anywhere.
3: Yeah. You know, I had a great story with that. There was a man who was just absolutely uh, incredulous that his video didn't work and he was mad and he was belligerent and we hadn't taken off yet. And he said, I demand to sit in first class. <laughs> and I mean, he just you know, I was sitting right next to him like, I can't believe he's you know <laughs> being this mean. And so it was great because at one point the flight attendant said, "Um, uh, sir, there, there's a space in first class for you. Oh, OK, great. And he gets up. And I look at her, and she looks at me, and she goes, there's no first class. And he was escorted off the plane. Whoa. <laughs> so I was like, oh. whoa. I was like, good. good. So, yeah, Exactly. Well, you know, th- <laughs> exactly. there's this
0: kind of traveler. I, was, I remember being at the airport once, like, the day before Christmas in Singapore, all excited to go home. And the man in front of me was booked first class, and they, for some reason, didn't have first class form. And they were going to refund him the difference and get him home in mm-hmm. second class. And he said he refused to get on the plane, and they said, "Well, we can get you on first class uh, the day after Christmas." So he went back, and, and he he missed Christmas at home, and he spent two days more in Singapore because he didn't want to sit on the airplane with everybody else in second class. And I just thought, wow, boy, that is real commitment <laughs> to to luxury.
3: <laughs> exactly, good for you, good for you. I'm sure your family would be very happy to know. <laughs> yeah, right.
0: Yeah, Samantha, what's your trick for a jet lag?
3: My trick is to abstain from all caffeine uh, two days before I'm leaving. At a destination, um, whatever flight I'm on, that's my first night of sleep at that destination. You reset your clock. And uh, when I wake up, once I start feeling that feeling of cement, uh, I mean, mm-hmm. it just invades your body, that is when I allow myself my first, you know, espresso yeah. in Italy or, you know, Vietnamese coffee in Vietnam. And it hits your system like a ton of bricks and oh. you're you're able to go because okay. you can't sleep. You can't.
0: So you keep you keep going through the rest of the day until a local bedtime?
3: Yes, yes. So without all the caffeine built up in your system, it's it's stronger. It's much stronger.
0: Especially when you drink as much coffee as you. If you go without it for a little while, your whole system's going to be, whoa, when you get it back.
3: Exactly. <laughs> I, think I remember this feeling.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's what I like. Let's this, go, and, oh, wow, let's it's go to a museum. Time. Let's climb a tower. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> well, I think it's what you mentioned is very good. You've got to... Flip your wristwatch and your brain psychologically ahead to the local mm-hmm. time. A lot of people actually keep their wristwatch on, on you know, home California time or whatever while they're over there. And they're going, oh, it's 3 in the morning. I must be exhausted. No, no, no. It's, it's yeah. 6 o'clock in the evening. You're going to hang in there. And then right. uh, I always think jet lag hates bright light, fresh air, and exercise. So get out there. And I like that idea of take a fast from caffeine and then give yourself a shot when you need it. and yes. uh, And that'll do it. I, I still wake up wired uh, early in the morning uh, on that first day, but I, I do <laughs> make myself stay out on that first day mm-hmm. and, and kick myself into that local time, and, and that, that helps pretty good.
3: Absolutely. Yeah, it does. And, and you know, after, after you get past that first day, you're, you're good. You are. Yep.
0: Frequent traveler and TV host Samantha Brown's with us right now on Travel with Rick Steves as we compare notes for comfortable travels and learn how she keeps herself fresh on assignment all over the world. You can share your own frequent traveler pointers in the radio message board. It's in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Hey, um, when you settle into a hotel, I mean, if you're on the road for 200 days a year, that's a lot of hotels. Do you have some oh ritual gosh. to make it kind of homey uh, turn it into Samantha Brown's place?
3: I basically, I make it safe because one time I, I checked into a hotel and went to bed right away, and I woke up, and um, I had to use the ladies' room, my bathroom. And so I ran to where I thought the bathroom was, but there was a wall there, and I broke my nose. <laughs> <So> you did? <laughs> I broke my nose because I was thinking of a hotel I was staying at the night before. I mean, oh that's my how fast goodness. we move around. So now when I check into a, a, my room... I take an inventory of where everything is. Yeah. I see where all the plugs are because you're going to have to plug yeah. in your computer and yeah. you don't want to. So it's basically I just, where's the emergency exit? I think Good. this is really important, something yeah. we never do. Yeah. Um, how do I get out of this hotel? <laughs> um, should there be a fire? And then the number one tip I give people because it is my number one travel nemesis is I unwrap the plastic soap. Because usually soap comes hermetically sealed in that plastic, which you have to take apart Oh, um, with when that little sticker. And, and when and you're in the shower, it's too late and it just becomes, it'll bring you to tears <laughs> just trying to open up this yeah. piece of soap. So I unwrap all the plastic from the soap, mm-hmm. and um, I actually put away all the bric-a-brac that the hotel gives you, yeah. either like potpourri baskets or oh, yeah. table tents, you know, advertising margaritas or whatever. I do too. Um, and then the maid so, comes uh, and
0: puts it all back out the next day. Someday. Well,
3: exactly. Exactly. <laughs> then you've got to be diligent. You've I go, got to I go be diligent. This,
0: as the first thing I do, Sam, is I get in a hotel room, Uh, especially if I'm there for a couple days. Then that's when I really kind of move in. And I pick up all the advertising and all that stuff and I I stow it somewhere and and it's just invariably the the maid will think, oh, somehow this all (laughs) got put away. I'm sure he wants that little advertisement for Wi-Fi back right in front of him when he's trying to use the room.
3: Especially in Europe, did you find yourself figuring out the water situation before you had to wake up the next morning at 5 a.m.? Because I found that (laughs) just trying to figure out how you get hot water out of whatever kind of mechanism they have for a shower... Sometimes it would take, in the old European hotels, yeah. it takes like seven minutes for, you know, well, cold water to turn into something that would lather soap.
0: The worst is in a little shower where you have to stand oh under the water in order yes. to fiddle with the knobs. So you yes, can't exactly. adjust it unless you're <laughs> under the water. And I go, what masochist designed this thing? And
3: Absolutely. it. Yeah. So it's always important for me to do a test run of the shower the night before and see, you know, basically you're unlocking the combination and you say, okay. That's where the handle has to be for me to get hot water. Okay, got it. You know,
0: know, this is kind of quirky, but I just bring my own soap from home. I don't like to use the itsy-bitsies. I have soap I like. And rather than opening up a new one, it just doesn't seem very green to me. And then I I just, you know, say, well, I can save this there. So I have one little itsy-bitsy soap that I put back in my soap dish that I use by the sink. And then I have my big bar that I put into the shower. And then I don't have to worry about those wrappers and all that kind of thing.
3: You know that's a great tip. I yeah. like that. I, I yeah. work because you well have your own me. stuff. I
0: like my own yeah. stuff, and then it's greener because I go to fifty hotels in the summer and I'm not opening up I fifty know. little packages. And yeah. You know they say you know we care about the environment, and if you leave your towel hanging up, we won't change it. But they always change it, and it's they just, always change it. They're just hell bent yeah. on, on on cleaning everything, and yeah. that's why a lot of times I'll just say don't disturb, and I, I don't want my room yes. fiddled with every day. Do you ever lay in bed with your eyes closed in the morning and wonder where you are?
3: All the time, yes. One time I came back from a trip, and um, I woke up, and I remember thinking there was a tree. And I'm like, why am I looking at a tree right now? (laughs) And my hand fell, and I touched my my husband, who was my, my boyfriend at the time, and my blood just turned cold because... I thought I was still traveling, and why is there a person in my bed? <laughs> and I just and my brain's going, get out of the room, 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 because I can't figure out what's happening. And then it's like, no, it's Kevin.
0: It's Kevin. It's Kevin. Thank goodness. It's Ke- I'm
3: home. I'm home. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and well, it was and time so, for you to get home, Samantha Brown.
3: Yes, <laughs> you- exactly. Yeah, so, so there are definitely those times where, you know, you you get home and you're still not quite acclimated <laughs> to being home. So.
0: Samantha, how can we be sure to know what you're up to with your TV production and all your travels?
3: Uh, You can follow me on Twitter, at Samantha Brown, and you can also go to my website, which is samantha-brown.com, and it has, what's up next for me?
0: Samantha, let's just wrap this up talking a little bit philosophically. What's Mm -hmm. what's an important lesson you've learned from your travels? Because I know you were a host before you were a traveler, and you got into this kind of fresh. How has it impacted your view of uh, life in the United States and so on?
3: I would say that travel has made me realize how wonderful being with people just in their everyday lives are. When I first started the job, say, 13 years ago, I thought travel was about seeing big things and checking things off your itinerary. Now I realize it's really just getting to know people and simply saying hello to someone and striking up a a small conversation. It's about little moments. And it's, it's these moments that just reinforce that, hey, if life is extraordinary, everyday life is extraordinary somewhere else in the world, then my life is pretty extraordinary as well. So it just reinforces uh, my own life and my life in travel.
0: I think that's probably about the best souvenir you could take home.
3: Yeah, yeah I agree. <laughs> I, just people, people and moments.
0: Samantha Brown, how do you close your show? What do you say at the end of your TV show?
3: Oh, I don't have anything. Uh, you you have that great you have a great send off and I, I don't.
0: Until next time, keep on traveling, Samantha That's Brown. Right. Until next time, keep on traveling, okay?
3: I like that. I think you, you, you know, can me, have it I can't. <laughs> it's already taken by someone great. Exactly. I'll go for
0: it. I'm so glad that you're keeping on traveling and thank you so much for all the fun you've brought home thanks to your TV show and all your work.
3: Oh, and, and to you too,
0: Rick. Thank you so much. Okay, talk to you soon. Bye.
3: Bye-bye, Rick. Why
6: don't you reach out and touch Somebody's hand
3: Make this world a better place Yeah
0: Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe through the back door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick. Thanks to the Radio Foundation in New York and to GPB Radio in Atlanta for studio help today. There's more in the radio
6: section of ricksteves.com, including audio from the show that you can download to your
1: smartphone or MP3 player, and links for sending your questions and travel reports to Rick and his guests. And we'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves.
0: Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. The European Union received the 2012 Nobel Peace Prize for promoting peace, human rights, and democracy. Information available at
1: euintheus.org. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, a monthly newsletter and a world of information to help you turn your European travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next European adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.